Welcome to CTO Think, a podcast about leadership, product development, and tech decisions between two recovering chief technology officers. Here are your hosts, Don Vandemark and Randy Burgess. Hey, Randy, what's going on this week? Hey, Don. Uh, let's see. This week, lots of uh, React Native stuff. That's pretty much React Native, Firebase, Authentication. Um, that's really been the bigger thing is that workflow, doing some designs with my uh, with a team, trying to get the wire workflow that a client wants set up before we, we begin work experimenting on some react native a lot of like very much in what i've been doing this last chunk of the year has seemed to be more front-end client javascript react based kind of work so this week was sure. different what sure. about you um uh, more the same more the same working through a couple different projects um Picking up a little bit more of the load on construction specialties while the uh, the other owners are away uh, for a few weeks, so taking on a, a little bit more of the load, but that's that's all good. Um, so this week, what I wanted to to try and talk about a little, um, it, it was brought to mind by an example I'll go into later, is the reliance these days upon third parties. Um, for software, for systems, um, for hosting, um, and how, as a technology leader, how much do you vet um, the the third party? How much do you vet the software? How do you vet the third party and and the and the software itself? Sure. Um, so so in general, those things. So. It, it, it's a little bit broad ranging in that it we could be talking about anything from Amazon Web Services um, uh, or Heroku or you know a hosting platform um, all the way down to um, some shell scripts that you use um, that that you get from GitHub yeah. um, in order to plug into the possibly production software that you're putting out there. Um, so I'll start with with um, I'll start with with really the the bigger companies because I think that's the easier ones to talk about. Um, when you're talking about a, a an Amazon web services or, or even a Heroku, which is a little smaller, but um, once they were bought by Salesforce, they're not that much smaller. Um, their name kind of carries itself. Um, I, I, we talked a few weeks ago about, um, nobody the, the old adage that nobody ever got fired for buying IBM and how yeah. that transitioned and nobody ever gets fired for buying Microsoft. Um, nowadays it's probably nobody ever gets fired for buying Amazon. Um, because I know when AWS has an outage, has a US East outage, there are a lot of services that go down. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So, what what do you, what are your considerations? I won't say vetting because I, I don't know that's vetting. But what are your considerations when when thinking about br- using one of these larger services? I guess I need more context for give me an idea of what I'm using it for. 
All right. So we'll we'll use we'll use the example that you're you're talking about with your project for your Firebase and and your React yeah. Native project, because those those two technologies alone came from big companies. What considerations did you go through in deciding to go down that path to trust those companies with what will eventually be production um, software? So first I think about what's at stake. Before I talk about the tools or vet the companies, I think about based upon the company, the client, or the startup, or my, the project I'm working on, what are the stakes if I make the wrong choice? In the case of our project that we're working on together, the Chasms one, the stakes are pretty low. If the if Firebase and Google go down, or they if Google shuts everything down, um, the ability to transfer the downtime we may suffer would be relatively low. Why? We essentially have one non-paying customer on a prototype level for a very small business. I'm talking to a company, or I work with a comp- for a company right now that utilizes Amazon for video transcription. And the that is like a big chunk of their money goes into that, those video um, decoding and coding. And if that suddenly stops, they're all of a sudden, they're not making money. So that's what I have to first look at is what are the stakes? How much research should I do? How much vetting should I do? Translates to what are the stakes if my choice is bad? Um the the next the next stage i would say <laughs> starts on how big is the supporting company and what is their are they solvent and will they sure. stay around a while um that's the next consideration before i get into does this service solve the problem right but i don't i used to do a lot more like when i worked for a small finance firm for a decade I looked at, I would talk to people at the companies we use. So I talked about how we started with the server in the middle of the room. We eventually moved to a server in a closet. And then we we moved those to a co-located data facility. And I literally took a flight to Louisville, Kentucky. There's a company called Maximum ASP. I have no idea if they're still in business. And I went to their co-location facility to look at it, to see what, like how they did it, like how they kept things working correctly. I don't think anybody does that with Amazon. Like, is Amazon? I don't think you can. Yeah, probably not. But I did that for a small company when co-locating data servers was a new thing. Um, Nowadays, it's such a commodity, and I feel like it's the businesses matured so much I couldn't, I can't imagine I would go to a co-location facility to look at it. Now, I would say I I make that determination for two reasons. One, in Chicago, there was a co-location facility and they had their servers sitting below the cafeteria for the company that was on the floor above them. 
they're on like the second floor and there was a company on the third floor that had a kitchen sitting above their servers which was like oh you have water and pipes sitting right above your server farm right and i remember walking through there and they told me the story about the leak i'm like why didn't you move the servers now like you went you put them back they're like oh well they fixed the pipe (laughs) i was like (laughs) you're not getting my business for sure but i never forgot that walkthrough i did that was more of a meetup that i just happened they're like hey do you want to see a tour of our really cool hardware i'm like sure but I like I did that in Tampa. Um, I, w- I was in Tampa at a. We were using a service provider for website hosting for this financial firm, and they were going to show us the server farm that was located on the 40th floor of a Tampa Bay high rise. Which there aren't a lot in Tampa that I remember. Right. And I was like, so where's the bathroom? for the floor above this one because I saw these pipes running along the wall that seemed like plumbing stack. And they're like, Oh, I think that's the bathroom. And I'm like, why is the art? Like, why is the server right under that water source? And they're like, I don't know. It's a high rise. Why do you care? <laughs> and I'm like, water is water, you know, and you're above, you're below it. Gravity and water are, are not two good things. So you're asking me about, we're winding the story all the way back to the choice of Firebase and what I vet. When I looked at Firebase and Google for our thing, our project, I just don't think much about it. I'm assuming that Google isn't doing stupid things like that because there's too much risk for them to lose that data on behalf of clients. Because in theory, they don't really know what clients are on which servers because they just are at a scale of this is all commingled and mixed. And I'm assuming that they're using facilities that don't have that same kind of ignorance that I saw in Tampa and that I saw in that Chicago place. And that's that's how I do it now, I guess. Right. And and I would say they, we talked last last time about certifications and, and security certifications and things like that. Though nowadays, and and it was a little like that back then, but not as much, but nowadays those companies do have to go through those certifications and physical security and, and, and physical considerations are part of it. Now, I don't think there's a box on the, on the certification form that says, is your server farm below a bathroom um, or below a water source? It it should. Maybe it should. (laughs) Um, but, but it's certainly, um, it, 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 that's, 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 I think why, why we rely on those as well is because we're pretty, we, we, we can, we can infer quality, um, based on the certifications. It's not a, a direct correlation. Um, but we can infer it. We can infer that there are a series of checks they've had to go under in order to pass these various um, certifications and audits. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's and 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 your story that story is a great story about about the the type of vetting for those types of services. Um, I'm going to give one more big company example. 
Um, and then we'll dive a little bit more into the smaller stuff. Sure. Um, and, and it's, it's relevant. So Microsoft just announced that they're buying GitHub this week. So that is an example of a, a big company buying a smaller company. Not, I wouldn't consider GitHub potential uh, all that small. Um, but in, in, I, I know that in general, there was some negative reaction. Now I can't, I can't put a number on it. I can't say if it was 50, 50 or what, but there was some negative reaction that, Oh, look, Microsoft's coming in to buy GitHub. They're going to commercialize it. They're going to do all that. Um, but that said, how let's talk specifically about that example. What was your general impression of the what was your general impression of GitHub's future based on that decision? And what's your impression of Microsoft based on that decision? If I, because of, again, the stakes for my data, privacy, security, um, I don't, none of it affects me one way or the other. I, I have the complete assumption that for what my clients at their scale and whatever the terms of service, which of course I have not read in depth for GitHub, the stakes are not enough that it's worth my time to do a legal analysis on the GitHub terms of service or the Microsoft terms of service to know that I am at a significant change. I can't imagine my, my assumption, which could be ignorant, but is that there's nothing that GitHub or Microsoft will do that exposes my data to a risk or risk that they will assume control or ownership of it. Now, if I'm a bigger company and Microsoft is one of my biggest competitors, I'm taking my software off of that platform as fast as I can. That's the only reason I would move like all these people switching to GitLab overnight. The only reason I would move is if I had a competitive, if there was a competitive disadvantage for Microsoft being able to look under the hood and see my code um, because they are buying GitHub, that's when I would move it in terms of, does it change the, do I see a risk with overnight They'll shut down GitHub and I'll lose code? No. Do I see a risk and they simply turn a switch and all of my private repos are public for anyone to download? No. Um, Do I foresee a drop in quality or a change in price overnight that I can't respond to? No. So I'm, I'm of the idea that if I need to make a change, I'll have the time to do it. And I just don't see why Microsoft, in their in the way they've been acting recently, I don't foresee a risk that's generated by their move to do this. If Steve Ballmer right. was if Steve Ballmer was still in charge of Microsoft, I would be having a different story, because I feel like he was one of the most anti-developer. He's a he. To, I put his attitude towards software as the reason why Microsoft dipped and sure. why and why they went down this path that 
seem to be anti-progressive when the rest of the world was going on another path. Right. And once he was out of the picture, it was not very long before we started to see a different Microsoft that now looks like a good custodian of open source and a development development um, environment that is positive for the industry. And I know it's not just him, but that's where you can definitely see a, you know, a divide between the two. The, the contrast is right there when he left leadership and how Microsoft approached the industry. The only example I'll give you of a company that before Microsoft, um, they were using GitHub, but they refused to use GitHub to store their company code up in the cloud on GitHub. And it was probably an attorney's risk assessment or the CTO at the time could not fathom pushing code out there. And so they were using something called GitHub Enterprise, which was kind of like their own, they had their own server farm somewhere else with a version of GitHub that they, I guess, paid a license fee for, but it sat on their own servers. And so the code was essentially all on the, like their side. Like I could see a company that was that paranoid in the first place. I don't want to say paranoid. That sounds like unreasonable. A firm with that level of risk concern for utilizing GitHub in their own server farm environment, I can't imagine that they would look at the Microsoft acquisition as necessarily something they would like. Um, be sure. Just because it introduces a whole other set of what happened, like who has control of things now. But right. I mean, the same firm had .NET as their code base, and everyone on the engineering team was using Windows XP or whatever was in between there and now. And I don't like they they bought paid for Microsoft products. I just don't. Yeah, I, I personally, I just didn't see an issue with it um, based on the way Microsoft has been run in the past three or four years. Sure. So I. Your take is 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 real is a good is a is a really good executive uh, tech executive way of looking at it and and just from a, from an Aspire Edu standpoint where our our code is on GitHub it's in a private repository but it's on GitHub. Um, yeah. If Microsoft were all of a sudden to get into educational analytics, would we look at pulling it off? Maybe um, that that's a possibility. Um, I think it's a it's a it's a risk mitigation. What's the likelihood they're actually they're actually going to go so far as to hunt down our code and then make the unethical decision to look at the code? Um, and and it's a risk mitigation factor. Um, overall, I view uh, as as more of a from, from more of a just a technical standpoint, I, I view the whole thing as positive. Um, well, yeah. Well, on that point, let me just interject. Right yeah. Here. The risk that you have of Microsoft as a company systematically going into repos of competitors to look at their code is almost nil. Right. I cannot fathom that there would be a from top to bottom strategy that would 
send out people or tools to analyze identified competitors and their code that's on GitHub. The, the risk factor for that type of thing would be substantial, I would imagine. But what the risk is that now you've given Microsoft the keys to the storage facility and a, an employee in the education space takes it upon themselves to use those keys to better their own position. That is a risk that I can completely buy into. Sure. That, yeah, Microsoft corporate says, oh, no, no, we don't have, like, everything is private. It's all secure. Just like um, just like hospital records are. But what do they keep doing in hospitals in at Los Angeles? They keep firing people for looking at hospital records of celebrities. Like, sure. you hear about it all the time. It's like... Who working at these hospitals doesn't get that there's a policy in place and a tracking mechanism for looking up celebrity private like health privacy? So the same thing applies here. The risk to me is that Microsoft doesn't have control over a few of their employees that may do something nefarious because now they have the keys to the car uh, or the keys to unlock the storage locker. That's the risk I, I completely think is there it's plausible i i i guess i'm more an optimist and and that that's that's a flaw when you come to <laughs> when you talk about security being an optimist is a flaw um I, I in that i would think that there are better controls in place but you never know so yeah. um it's something to evaluate if that ever happens and and if Microsoft ever enters that space. Um but overall it, it's it's a complete it's a complete 180 for Microsoft over the past 10 years. Yeah. Um so it, it's uh, I have had a on and off again relationship with Microsoft. Um I was never a .net developer like you 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 were. Yeah. Um, but I go back to Windows 3.3 for work groups days doing support for, for that. Um, so and and I was all on board with everything they were doing. I love the, the, the office software and and that attitude that you described, uh, the anti-developer attitude is certainly um, what drove me away. Uh, and I think they've completely reversed that. Um, I won't say that this purchase of GitHub is an expression of their love for the development community. Um, I think it's a strategic decision. Yeah. But I do also think that that strategic decision is how can we help developers? Um, when you and I were talking about this on Slack, um, when it happened, I think my my quote was Microsoft is going to take over the world again, <laughs> um, and and I think, and I mean it. And and the difference this time is they're going to take over the world with the help of developers. Um, well, I think what's different this time is there is a there are at least two or three legitimate competitors that they can't topple. They're not going to knock Google out of the picture. No, no, there are absolutely uh, competitors or. Uh, Microsoft did not yes, have a they competitor. Compete. 
not no legitimate. no you're 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 absolutely correct there was nobody else in the space in in the technical space there was nobody else for a while oracle came around they but they both did slightly different uh, fairly different things um, but now you're getting to where all these companies are starting to do all the things um, at the same scale. You've got um, Microsoft with Azure doing doing servers and and they're doing search and ads and all that. You've got Amazon doing the same. You got Google doing the same. So on and so forth. Um, so you're right. The competitive landscape has changed. Um, and their approach to this new competitive landscape is let's go enlist the help of the developers, which I mean, we, we have to tip, uh, tip our caps. He may be a jerk, but Linus Torvalds was the saving grace of the monopoly that Microsoft was like, I, I still go back to oh, for sure. providing Linux as a tool that everyone could build upon led to a fork that prevented Microsoft from getting stronger. Um, along with the help of Steve Ballmer, again, I don't bust on Ballmer all day, but his attitude pr- protected us from having Microsoft domination. Um, and let's, let, let, let's, let's clarify your point about Linux real quick. Because it's important to to draw the distinction, I think. It may be obvious to everyone. But there's a very clear distinction between Linux on the server and Linux on the desktop. Um, Linux on the server is exactly what you're talking about. Without its existence, there may have been something else that filled that void. Um, But that's exactly what kept Microsoft from really being able to control everything. Um, Linux on the desktop is still, uh, um, it's there. Um, and, and the good thing is, is that OS X is now a lot more like it. Um, so, so when Apple went that direction, that helped. Um, and even, even windows 10, now you can run, you can run it within windows 10. So, but I'm talking about the full attitude around open source. Okay, good. Once once you took an operating system that was the core of everything. I mean, at the time, Windows NT, Windows XP, everything that every every application was running on needed a server or something to be like the, the foundation. And Linux on the server side legitimized the idea of open source as profitable a quality way of doing business so that that promoted all of the application development. And that was in the Ruby, JavaScript, um, all the other languages that were based upon a, the, the open source movement because someone proved this can be done as an alternative to this commercially licensed proprietary way. Yeah, so and let and, and that's and that's that's absolutely the right the right angle to go down. That if it were not for that, I would not have kept my technical chops up. Yeah, um, because at the time uh, this this would have been oh I don't know you know around two thousand maybe a little before. Um, I was I was looking to do some development on the side. 
I had no desire to buy the MSDN license and get that, you know, the big CD pack with all the tools and everything on it. Um, So I fought like crazy against paying for anything and, and finding available things. And, and I built a system on all the open source things that were available. So um, uh, you're, you're absolutely correct that open source kept that from happening. So we've, we've diverted a little, we, we, we <laughs> went down that road, but that's okay. I think it was, it was, it was important to, to hit that um, because that's going to really segue into the, the next part, which is we've talked about big companies. Let's talk about little ones. Um, let's talk about all the little utilities, um, all the little tools. So I'm going to put you on the spot because um, I think you can explain it better than I can, but we'll give it a shot. Um, and let's real quick talk about the JavaScript ecosystem Yeah. Um, and the numerous, and, and numerous is not a big enough word, the numerous dependencies um, that any significant JavaScript application has and how many different tendrils and different little scripts that each script might load. Um, So talk about real quick the JavaScript ecosystem and and how all that all works. So the best way to say it is that the reality right now of... JavaScript is utilizing a service called Node Package Manager, NPM. And so if you want to do, let's say you want to set up a React application from scratch, you will utilize NPM to pull down the React library, which has a, which is pretty much a large collection of other libraries which then have their own dependencies. And so it's no it's basically a collection of thousands of functions to get work done. And people basically put all these pieces together like a puzzle and then they write up a little manifest that says, "Hey, my library that I wrote, my library takes in some text and spits out a result for you without you having to do that work yourself." And in in order for this to work, I'm using these three other libraries. And then you take that library, you stack it with 20 others, and that works together to make React work for you. And then I download React, and then I'm like, oh, I want this other cool feature, but it has a library dependency. So I say to NPM, hey, add this to my my code stack. In our world right now, a lot of people are making a big deal about the way this is working, because if you download React and you've got a thousand dependencies, that means you have to keep, in theory, you should be paying attention to all of them. Do they have security vulnerabilities? Are they updating to a new version? Do they, do they change their API to use that library? But the, the, tr- the difference, like this is not alien. Like this dependency on all these different libraries is not an alien concept going to our discussion about Microsoft. Microsoft.net, um, you would download their .NET framework, and it had a ton of dependencies. 
The difference is that on the Microsoft side, Microsoft was supporting all of those libraries and keeping them in sync. And on the open source side, it's a, I don't know who's in charge of what. I don't know if anyone's keeping up to date with this stuff. And if they are, they're not getting paid to do it. Right. There's a much different motivation on the developer side of keeping these things in line. So the concept of all these dependencies, thousands, is not new and it won't go away. That's how software is built. But the difference in the open source world is that the maintenance and consistency that you get is a much different ball game than what a proprietary Java, Microsoft-based, um, any of these frameworks that come with that are proprietary or have a, a license that basically you don't get to use us unless you pay us for it. Right. That's the big difference. So let's let let's go down that that rabbit hole a bit and let's let's bring up a couple examples real quick. Um so back in back in 2016 um there was an incident where a very basic a library called LeftPad yeah. was unpublished from NPM. Yeah. Um, and because of the stacked nature of, of the JavaScript dependencies, that ended up breaking a number of, uh, a large number of builds because no longer could somebody push their code to a remote server and say, okay, go grab all the, go grab all the libraries you need because one of the very basic dependencies was missing. But let's talk um, about, how, let's talk about, let's talk about left pad so that people understand the significance of it. Yeah. Left pad was simply a function. If I remember that put spaces before letters so you could line things up on a, on a justified right, uh, margin. Correct. That's all it did. And you would and say like, why, why would someone build a library of great importance and then bring in left pad to do what is, seems pretty simple. And the answer is that developers are lazy and want to get stuff done fast. And if someone has written that library for you, that this says, all you got to do is say left pad, this text and it will do it for you, you're like, oh, that's easy. I just took what would have taken me, it could take you three to four hours to, to do that right with all the different edge cases. Instead, I'm just downloaded it in five seconds and then boom, I'm good to go. I don't have to do anything else. That's the mindset of a framework builder and why, sure. and why left pad was even in the position it was in. For sure. So, so continue. Uh, and this this is not to disparage why LeftPad was unpublished. Uh, I'm not taking sides on either on on the story. It was more an example of what happened, yeah. um, and and what ended up the resolution was that NPM themselves made the decision that no, you can't unpublish that and republished it. Or yeah. as as the article I was looking at said, un unpublished it. Um, I think they forked it because it was under a license that allowed for forking, and they just put right. their own version of it. Essentially, and, 
Well, and and they could do that because when when the original developer unpublished it, he vacated the namespace. Um, yeah. So so that would allow them to fork and put it back in the same namespace. Um, so that that was just meant to be an illustrative example of what could happen um, and, and, and how that came to resolution. So there are any number of small utility libraries that all these different JavaScript functions use. And we're picking on JavaScript. This happens in any piece of large software, as you mentioned. So yeah. we're picking on JavaScript because it's got the, the examples we need. So, but, so, so my students asked me, I brought up LeftPad to my students a while back because we were teaching NPM and, and Node and talking about bringing in libraries. And I told them about this risk. And my students asked me, well, how, like, so then a company shouldn't do this, right? They shouldn't bring in React if that, if that chain of dependencies has that kind of risk. And I'm like, you could argue for a multimillion dollar firm that that's a risk that they shouldn't take. So what's the, what is the alternative? It's truly the alternative is to fork, to make a copy of every single dependency that you may need for your company's software and then host it yourself. That's, that is the quickest answer to, hey, we want to keep using React. What do we need to do to prevent a left pad scenario? Yeah, with, with, without, without this, without your your solution there causing us uh, another couple hours of discussion i, I want to make sure everyone's clear on what that entails it's not just the forking of the of the software and and you're clean it's the forking of forking and maintaining of all those libraries so now that you forked it you now need to go check every once in a while see what updates they put in, what security vulnerabilities they put in, what bug fixes they put in, or you need to do them yourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you are taking on a large labor burden by doing that. So and that's why I don't know that, anybody that does it. <laughs> it. It may be the least risky answer, but it is certainly a cost heavy answer. Yeah, I mean, the the only way to mitigate that to some extent is to fork it and then track it. Track the repo of the um, the source for their changes. And then, but it's still, there's still, like you said, a, a work, effort, labor component that has to monitor, test, and download the maintenance on each of those dependencies if you take them on as for your own copy. And if it, I, it, let, let's let's also be realistic, uh, I, I think we've both seen it enough that if you go down the path of forking these things, or even if you don't, um, eventually your own developers are going to say, you know what, we could write this one utility better. So let's do yeah. that. Let's fork it, write it ourselves, and then maintain it. So you're just you eventually start pulling it all in under your own umbrella anyway. Um, in a big, in a big software package, we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. So that that talked uh, that that was an example I wanted to bring up about about the ecosystem of 
software stacks and how they how they build upon each other. Um, let's talk about the other side of software, and that's support. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one particular service I was using um, for for a couple months. Um, I did not use it for anything production. I did use it for a beta test of something I was running. Um, And I signed up for it. And I signed up for it based on the recommendations of some very high-profile individuals in the developer space. Um, and, And the service itself worked fine for what it did. Um, I ended up not using it for as long as, as I expected because it was limited in what it could do, uh, beyond that. And I needed just a little bit more. So I'd signed up for it. I paid for the premium version. I went to unsubscribe from it. So I wouldn't be charged every month. And I supposedly unsubscribed and I never got a confirmation back. One month went by. I got a bill. F- I got a charge for it for another month. So I emailed support, never heard back. Another went, month went by, got another charge. I finally went down the uh, path of there was a phone number on the uh, on the receipt. So I called the phone number. I'm expecting to re- either hit a support line or one of the. Um, what are the, like a, a Zendesk, one of the um, yeah. outsourced uh, support desks? I, I expected to hit one of those. And I think what I ended up with was somebody's cell phone. Um, and, and I described the problem. He told me to email it with high priority in the subject line. And it got handled. So long story short, problem solved. But... The whole ex- if if I had if I had hit that experience, still wanting to use the service, but needed to go down that path for a different reason. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second, this does not feel fully uh, baked. This feels like it's uh, being supported loosely, um, and I'm not sure what's going to happen if I need some real help with it, or if I have a real problem. Or is this even a big enough deal? It, because I don't feel it's being treated professionally. Is it a big enough deal to the developers who are on, who created it to where if they get offered a job at Google, the service goes away or the service doesn't go away, but just sits there in ages um, without updates. So that's the other side of it is the support side of it. And, and ways ways I've used to at least try and feel things out. When I whenever I see um, a library that somebody's recommended, most time I'll go see if I can find the GitHub for it um, and the GitHub repository. And I'll look. I'll look at the issue queue. I'll look yeah. at the 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 first thing I'll do actually is when you go to that page in GitHub, it brings up their directory listing. If there have been no changes to that directory listing within the past six months, or sometimes within the past three months, all of a sudden my brain goes, well, wait a minute. This doesn't feel 
like it's being kept on top of. Oh yeah, I, I um, think I think a lot of people use com- the last commit. I, when I look for two things, one, when is the last commit, and what was how involved that last commit look? Like I don't dig into it, but if they bumped the version number with no other changes, or they changed the README, I'm like, okay, that's not enough. When is the last time they dug into a JavaScript file or a core piece and made a change? Yeah, I, I think you're. I think a lot of people do that to see how. I guess we all assume that changes happen all the time, and so there's no way that your code can sit there for six months and be stable <laughs> and not right. need not require maintenance, kind of like a car. Right. Um, so yeah, you're, you're not alone in doing that. I definitely judge how well something is maintained based on when's the last time a commit was made to a branch. Well, I, it, it goes, it goes even further nowadays with, with security concerns. Um, because, uh, the latest change to NPM, if you do an NPM install, all of a sudden it comes back with, a. You know what? You've got some packages here that have vulnerabilities. You need to address those. Yeah, and that that was a huge change because we're used to do an npm install, pulling in the latest or or whatever version number we needed. And npm's done the right thing and said, you know what? You're not using the latest version of this library because of the way you chose to version your dependencies. Yeah. Um, and we're getting a little technical, but that it, it, it's it's certainly something to look at. Is are you sure the software is being maintained? Um, and, and that's that that was very eye opening to me when I ran into that last night. Well, talking about choosing a third party service and support, that's what you're paying for in my mind. Like, yeah, you're you're paying for the product. But whenever, any time I was using a third-party service for the financial firm I used, I really paid attention to how, like, how big is your support staff? How do you reach them? How often can I reach them? Um, like, responsiveness. What will you help with? What is considered custom help? All of those things I had to look at very closely why i didn't have a big team so if if something went down on our hosting provider this happened to be the maximum asp there would be an issue where okay our servers are down i'm only one person i'm probably doing three or four different tasks at a time who else is going to talk to these people and to get things working but Maximum ASP would say, well, we've got two staffer. We have two different people that are always on the phone 24-7. And the only time that I ever got worried about them was when I sent an email and didn't hear back for 48 hours. And that was a couple of years into using them. And I was like, what happened to the 24-hour thing? And they literally said, somebody clicked your item closed before we got to it. Sorry, that was our problem. But right. my point is more if you are outsourcing your like a service to another company and you it is really important for you to understand what level of support they provide, because what you told me about this one that you're talking about tells me that their level of support is on the level of open source free, not I'm paying right. for it. 
So I for sure, that's the way it felt. Yeah, I expect twenty four hours on an email, um, even to tell me it's my fault. I expect twenty four hours when I'm paying for it. When I for don't sure. pay, when I don't pay for it, it's on the free plan. Like I have some firms that just say, "Go look, go ask this question in our forum, or go look in our forum first. And I'm fine with that. I actually think that's smart for them to say before you bother us when you're not paying for things, can you ask our community? And I've been happy to do that. When I pay for it, nope. Your job is to answer the question, even if it means give me a link to read something, but I'm paying for support. And I did that research up front to know the support was there. So that's, I definitely look when using any third party service, I look at all those different aspects of support. Um, the ones I, the one that I always look past back in the day has always been Google. I use Google Gmail. I use Google Calendar, um, Google Apps for domains, whatever they call it now. And I don't expect much support at all. I can't remember the last time I sent Google an actual request ticket or a trouble issue ever because I just don't expect right. them to ever answer anything. On Firebase, which we will be paying for, um, right now I don't even know what others... I know the support mechanisms that I've seen do get some responses, but one of them is on Stack Overflow, so that's a roll of the dice. The other one is Google Groups for Firebase, which seems to get responses, but it doesn't always for people. I don't know if there's a direct support line to be like, hey, I have a problem on a Firebase issue. But again, that is, I feel like the Firebase side of things has more support, but that I'm probably remiss in thinking that it's as significantly better for, what, 25 bucks a month? I don't think that's going to move the needle for Google. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a really good point. I, I tell you, any time that... <sighs> I have never had, and this is this is unrelated to Firebase, but related to Google Groups for support. Um, any time, I struggle to recall a time when I've searched for something, found a link to a Google Group, and it being helpful. Um, usually, any any answer I found has been elsewhere. I don't know that I've found many scenarios where Google Groups has been helpful. You've you you've been a little bit deeper in the ecosystem these past few weeks with uh, Firebase. So you may have a slightly better experience. There's no, it's hit or miss because there's no moderation in the Google groups. And so we've talked about the, the negativity of Stack Overflow, how their moderators can scare people off or be a negative influence for the community. But you could also turn around and say, well, there is a level of quality to, to Stack Overflow answers that is different that is higher quality than Google groups. It, it's a debate either way, I think. Right. That's, that's the difference is Firebase answers on Stack Overflow. I mean, Google has, like we talked about this on this old app, Google Firebase has a person that answers questions related to Firebase. That's how they hired the person. And that's what that person still does. They still show up and answer Firebase questions. Now I, I have a Firebase pending question right now that's gone about 24 hours and no one has answered it. I'm curious to see if it, if it does get answered, but 
that's the kind of like it's a roll of dice until there's a mechanism to pay for the service and then expect something back. Right. And in Google groups is definitely a role. Uh, it's a bigger gamble. I would not be, depend. I would not bet any support dependency on a Google group thread or a forum as a matter of experience. Just like you said, it, it certainly feels like a last last resort yeah. um, sometimes. So, so I think that brings it full circle. I think we've talked about the big, the small, all the pieces involved. Um, I think the takeaway is as a tech executive, um, make sure you have a, a, an eyeball on all the dependencies. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean go vet every base basic library that is a dependency for the other libraries you're using. I'm saying be aware that you have them um, and start considering the risk involved in staying there or um, pursuing some of the alternatives we have. Um, I, what are, what are, go ahead. Well, I think what I would say is again, tell me what your stakes are. If you are a, if you, if your business is dependent, dependent upon privacy of data, a large amount, like if you, if you take the scenario, what's the worst that would happen on a open source React project or React Native or whatever, what what would be some negative consequences of downloading the wrong package? I would I would say someone writes a library, they put in a bit of code that's malicious in that it re- reads, records, and, and copies data that a user inputs that may be private around hospital records, health records, financial records passwords and security if like you it's very very easy to download an external dependency that would do something like any kind of virus would do like there's unless there's a something protecting you or a scanner involved it's very possible now in theory the, the open source community is protecting against that with groupthink or group decisions of that's a bad practice. That's why you get the NPM and vulnerability kind of thing. Like people are starting to say, Hey, we need better controls for quality and and assurance. But I would say before I would say it's not realistic for you to look at all these libraries. I'd say what, what what happens if someone gives, if you download a package and you find out it's got, it's copying user data any input they put data into, it's copying that. If you can tell me, not a big deal, we're not that big, I would just get rid of that package and not sleep bad. I'd be like, oh, okay. But if you would tell me, oh, that might devastate us, that might ruin us, then you're t- then you're telling me that it is very much worth your while to inspect those packages, to ex- inspect those libraries and make sure there's not nefarious stuff going on. And that's, but if 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 you, that's not a one time thing, I don't care. That's part of your business. Not, it's risk no, no, I'm, I'm 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 not I'm not disagreeing. I'm <laughs> I'm making sure it's clear to everyone that's not a one time thing. Oh no, it, um, it, I'm not saying it's easy. I, none of this. Yeah, yeah. The easiest thing is to not worry about it. But if you're any link, any co- code you bring into your code base from an outside party, 
is a point of risk and you have to decide what are the stakes? What happens For sure. when, if something exposes that, that code or data to other people that, that it shouldn't, um, and a billion dollar company that's protecting health records with, like with HIPAA compliance, those are, that's probably some of the most um, high risk data you could think of beyond this GDPR stuff, but more of like if you have a health care app and it's all of a sudden spitting people's private uh, health records into the cloud, into a pace bin or something, you're out of business, man. Like <laughs> there's nothing, there's no, for sure. So that's my point is I, there are cases where I could understand a security team that does their job is to inspect that stuff, but you're a billion dollar firm. You can afford those types of mechanisms for the labor and what it takes to make sure that doesn't happen. And there are services, I believe that will do that for you. Um, right. That will, that will inspect NPM um, at a enterprise level for that kind of vulnerability, but I don't right. think and they're cheap. And if there aren't, we need to go create one. <laughs> we should, yeah, let's check that out before before our <laughs> list, before our listener hears us and goes, "That's a great idea." As we always say, ideas are ideas are cheap. Executions almost everything. From, so, from yeah, from a from the standpoint of is this a million dollar idea or would I like someone else to do it? Please, if you're a listener and that idea sounds awesome to you, and there's no one else has done it. Go ahead, steal it. Go do it. I would rather pay you to do it than to to actually figure out if it's profitable myself. That's just <laughs> <laughs> we we've got too many other projects going yeah, on that, exactly. that need it. So, all right. So I think that's where where we'll wrap up for today. Uh, you have anything else? No, I mean I think ultimately there's always like right now. The JavaScript is a great example. I, I was part of a debate today about the instability of the JavaScript framework platform, blah, 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 blah. You know, I think we all need to remember that at a very, like, that a, everybody depends on something for their work. There is not a business in this country, very, very few that I can ever think of that don't, that you aren't depending upon some other service as a dependency, if, if you're shipping something, you depend on the government to maintain roads. You may, you depend on some agency to maintain waterways to ship things. You depend upon the military to protect the borders. You depend on the United States Postal Service or FedEx to get ships or shipments going across. Like, unless you're walking dirt roads even dirt roads are graded by somebody like there's some service out there that is you're dependent upon and you're paying for it through taxes or through a service fee or some other thing. And you have to vet those. We take it for granted. Like I don't look out on the road and go, Hmm, I wonder if I should keep depending on the city of Chicago to pave this road. Let me look at my alternatives. Like some of these things, are like kind of built in and we just kind of take for granted that they will get done. And there are streets around the corner from me that probably wonder why they're not getting potholes filled right now. But on our level, 
there's really no difference. Like you're depending on the internet to be up because there's core infrastructure telecommunication companies that are providing an internet connection. So that someone right. in Japan can hit your website. As you get closer and closer to the application you're building, you're de- you have these other dependencies and third parties. And you have to decide where the risk is and what the trade-off is for how much detail you care about. And so I can trust that for my e-commerce app I may have that shipments will go out through FedEx and FedEx will take care of things and resolve issues that come up. That's what I'm paying for. When it comes to LeftPad and NPM, back in the day, I thought I could depend on them not to allow LeftPad to get killed. But they had a dispute with the LeftPad person and that person pulled it. So all of a sudden we all woke up and go, oh yeah, who's policing this? NPM made a bold decision to resolve, to like fix that loophole. The left pad person, they did a good job of actually showing us a hole in the infrastructure in that way. So I, I, I approach all of these things with your job as a, as a technical leader, dependencies are not going to go away. Complain all you want about JavaScript, complain you what you may about open source. You're going to depend on somebody for something. It's your job to inspect this, to know the stakes when things go wrong, to know the cost of maintenance and staying up on top of all the dependencies your software may have, and then making the right choice or the right bet on what your company needs in that scenario. And it's, I just, like that's part of the gig. I think this is an integral part of getting this job done is maintaining dependencies and we're talking about tech, not people today, but it's, it involves all of that, I think. Sure. Well said. All right. That's all right. Enough. So <laughs> I, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> I, I, I think we will wrap it there for this week. Thank you, Randy. All right. Later. See ya. Thanks for listening to the CTO Think Podcast. Show notes and previous episodes can be found on our website at ctothink.com. Reviews on Apple iTunes are always appreciated and help promote the show. Patreon contributions help us to produce episode transcripts, which allow people that are deaf or hard of hearing to access the show. If you have feedback, ideas, or want to be a guest, please email us at hello at ctothink.com. Show music is Dumpster Dive by Mark Wallach, licensed by premiumbeat.com. Voiceover work by meganvoices.com. You'll hear from us next week. We'll be right back.